Today in the Marshall Pro Podcast, we have your week in sports cars. It feels like a week plus a weekend. Graham Goodwin and the returning Stephen Kilby, both from the DailySportsCar.com empire. Graham, you were on the ground at Circuit de la Sarthe. Stephen, you were on the ground in Circuit de la United Kingdom, covering on behalf of DSC. I watched as much as I could from home, and we got to talk about this because there was a motor race, and a lot of folks won that motor race, and there's a lot of stuff to talk about from performances, imbalanced of performances, uh, television coverage, a bunch of stuff, guys. I don't know if we're going to get to all of it in one episode, but I do know that the three of us agreed we wanted to at least get this part one done ASAP following the race. Where should we start? Uh, we're going to start with the one that utterly dominates. In fact, you know what? Let's just kick off quickly, MP, with some questions about IMSA, because we do have one or two, and it's been a day of drama um, for IMSA with, I think, three cars pulling out of mid-Ohio with uh, Porsche uh, confirming after some COVID-positive tests and then WeatherTech Racing pulling their car out as well. What's your take? Well, speaking of drama, we have a dramatic love and passion for the partners who make our shows possible, along with our listeners who send in the questions. So we're going to say huge thank you to the Justice Brothers, TorontoMotorsports.com, Bell Racing Helmets USA, and certainly Cooper Tires. And if we're talking about these three exits, bringing the car count down to 24 Rough times, obviously. LMP2 will not be in attendance, so there are a few cars that could possibly boost that up if we had all four WeatherTech Championship classes there. But 24 might be among the lowest number I can recall in a really long time, gents. We have the COVID-related Porsche GT team exit, noting that there were three members of the overall program that tested positive while at Le Mans. Didn't get into specifics as to whom, whether it was crew member, driver, you name it. But we do know that out of concern for the spread, they're wanting to isolate the three drivers, uh, three of the four full-timers in the IMSA Porsche GT program. So took competing in Lexington, Ohio, off the board, gents. The one that I find most interesting, getting back to that drama word again, That would be Scuderia Corsa announcing that they are skipping Mid-Ohio in the GT Daytona class, the number 63 Ferrari sponsored by WeatherTech, the series sponsor coincidentally, so that young Cooper McNeil can attend the Ferrari season finales, the Ferrari challenge bits taking place at one of my home tracks here, WeatherTech Raceway Laguna Seca. Funny how the word WeatherTech keeps coming up here, gents. Uh, They are going to be focusing on Ferrari Challenge this weekend in Cooper's pursuit of championships there instead of going to mid-Ohio. So going to the track they sponsor, not going to the event and the series that they sponsor, all in favor of trying to get the Ferrari titles. Would also note, before we transition away from this to a big weekend of Le Mans coverage to get into, guys. The Ferrari has not won this year in GT Daytona. 
great dissatisfaction related to balance of performance and general belief as to whether they can truly win there. I'm not saying that they are making a statement by not going to participate at Mid-Ohio. I would say, though, that the simplicity of, aha, a weekend of conflicts strictly related to COVID, schedules being shifted around, now these two collide, sending Cooper back and forth between sessions, which they've kind of sort of done in the past, uh, something they're not wanting to do. When I read the release, you could take it on face value, and I think it's chock full of truthiness. would also say that there are some underlying things that aren't included in there that we should at least not totally forget. <sighs> are these things ever simple, guys? They never are, no. right? Never? Nope. Never are. I, I think we've got a couple of other questions that are listed here under IMSA, but reality is that's more general. I think we're going to kick into quite a lengthy run-through what was happening in, around, at, and beyond Le Mans from here on in with Wick Aslam's ACO. It's not because there's a lack of interest in what's going on this weekend. We know we've got at least one big announcement to come at Mid-Ohio MP, and I suspect we're going to get rather more dominance of IMSA-ness when we get into next week's show. So should we kick off into uh, Wick Aslam's ACO? You are the man who determines the categories, so we're doing whatever it is that you say. Uh, uh, in which case, that's exactly what we're going to do. <laughs> we'll mention to our first-time listeners, we do our best to be really professional here. We we try, but we also set the bar somewhat low. My week in IndyCar listener Q&A show, I just wantonly refer to as my unpolished turd. At times, we we use that blanket here, so... We're going to do our best. And also looking at the word count, we have more than 3,000 words worth of questions. And normally it takes about an hour to get through a 1,000. So this would call for a yep. three-hour episode. I'm just giving this little proviso up front. It is 12.28 p.m. here on a Tuesday in delightful Northern California. My wife and I are rolling out the door at 1.45 for her chemotherapy. So 3,000 words equals three hours. We have yeah. uh, one hour and 17 minutes. So I think we're going to be doing a part two a little bit later, but let's get into the opening bits here. Joshua Ponce, hello, guys. Sorry I was gone for some time, but I'm back now. What are some of the takeaways from this year's 24-hour race and where should we go between the two of you? Because I know, Stephen, you were certainly drinking 27 gallons of coffee to stay up. Graham, you were commentating your glorious behind off. Glorious behind off. I think we've come up with a new sports car broadcaster, by the way. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, well, maybe the two of you can fill us in because you got to have blind spots well, like I do. I didn't get every single hour. Well, in fairness, Stephen got probably the most realistic take on them on as a consumer from afar, which is what most of our listeners will have got. So I guess I'll ask this question. How was it for you? How was, how easy was it to follow it? Um, and how good a race was it? Um, well, it's difficult to answer the the question about how easy it was to follow because the internet just kept falling over in my house for the entire race. So I spent a lot of the time running around rebooting Wi-Fi routers and shutting things down and blah, blah, blah. But I think as a race, it, I, I wouldn't say it was a classic 
but I would say it's a very entertaining race. There were there were only a few hours maybe in the early morning on Sunday where there weren't necessarily tons of things going on and it was a bit static. But as a whole, it all all four classes delivered their fair share of drama, didn't they? I don't think any lead felt safe at any point for anybody. And P2 and, and Am were, were what we thought they were going to be, which is classes that you couldn't really predict until at least the 12-hour mark. You couldn't really get a full feel for who was in contention. So it delivered in that sense. I thought it was a, it was, a it was an entertaining race and... It's just it was a joy to actually sit and be able to watch it. I think after all this madness. <laughs> well, well, I mean, I'll add to my take on that, which is I tend to agree. LMP one was what it was. The uh, Mike Hollis was sort of absent from the party, and then its rear wing fell off. Um, the rebellions simply didn't have the stint pace that the uh, Totas had. That was no no shock to anybody. Totus had a few problems, one of them a fairly serious problem, uh, which dropped one car uh, away from its traditional 1-2 position. And there was always that niggling doubt that maybe it could happen to the other car as well, but it didn't. Um, You know, the Rebellions actually came home with their uh, best ever result, second place in their final ever Le Mans race. And indeed, we now know uh, their final ever race uh, for Rebellion Racing. Um, P2, I thought, was a cracker. Um, the, there were t- some real stand-up performances. I know there's plenty of questions about young Jovenutet and his pace. 32 car was unlucky. Um, the pace of Mikkel Jensen, 26 car, they were unlucky. Uh, but the 22 car, the United Autosports crew, just punishing pace time and time and time again. Um, but pushed hard at the end in entertaining fashion by Jota. And sadly, we've only really got one more race in the history of wherever uh, with the tie war that we've been enjoying between first Michelin Dunlop, now Michelin Goodyear, because from the start of next season, it's going to be a Goodyear class in P2. GT Pro, Porsche, absent without excuse. Um, That left us with effectively, we thought, four cars. It turned out to be a little more entertaining than that at times with... Uh, the two American uh, additions, but came down to the full season WC cars and they made a fight of it. That was fun. GTM uh, duked it through without a shadow of a doubt. TF Sports and the other Aston Martin 98 car, um, I thought, bossed it. Cartoon Anvil fell on Paul Delano once again. Uh, there was incident aplenty, happily none too serious. And they gave us a good race at the finish with the added drama of that final safety car. I would give the race um, about 7 out of 10, mm. um, I think is what it comes down to. The other part of it, though, and this is, uh, I think, MP, a question that is for perhaps you and Stephen to actually um, answer. Now, I think you, MP, mainly had the Motor Trend product. Is that correct? <laughs> oh, <laughs> um, Yes. Right. So, okay. So, just to, for those that uh, didn't have the opportunity to watch and listen, my understanding is that effectively there were three options available, and that depended on what, where, where, and what was geoblocked, where and what was offered, in no order in particular. Radio Le Mans, audio only, um, uh, broadcast off-site from the UK, uh, with the usual cast of uh, knowledgeable uh, experts. The ACO TV product, of which I was part, 
broadcast on site with on site pit reporters. Uh, that is available on the WEC and Le Mans 24 app and was also available on, and correct me if I'm wrong here, MP, was the primary output for Motor Trend before the race and was available um, on on mobile devices even during the race. Correct. Uh, on Motor Trend On Demand. Which right? I but dubbed, on- yes, the professional channel in the alternate being Eurosport, the comedy channel. So for those using the Motor Trend app, there was the alternate feed that was added, which was yours, Young, Nishi, Martin Haven and such, the professional, the WEC feed. And now just oversharing here, the Motor Trend application, the Motor Trend app, obviously something one would expect to use via mobile phone, tablet, and whatnot, you had the option to pick between feeds. For the televised feed, the actual Motor Trend cable channel, no options to switch. So that was 24 hours of Eurosport for those who wanted to sit on their couch and watch via cable television. Okay, so that was your, they were your options. Um before we get into it, I'll tell you what it was like from our point of view. Not a lot of preparatory time on site because we were restricting access before we could turn up. We, we were firefighting some technical problems um, through the early sessions, which a lot of people noted volume levels were a little uh, screwy. Uh, but not, a, not that many problems apart from issues communicating to the pits during the race. Um, it felt okay from, uh, from our perspective. We had a good crew hard-working, picking up, for the most part, I'd say 95% of the time, pretty good shot calling from uh, from our team and from the, the crew in the truck. I have not listened to and have not watched a single second of anybody else's coverage because I was too busy doing my thing. Stephen Kilby, what did you watch, what did you listen to, and how did you find it? Um, I used pretty much everything at various points during the race, partly because of the internet issues so when i couldn't get internet to work i had eurosport um when i could get my phone to work i had radio on and when i could get my ipad to work i then used the wc app and streamed it to the tv on apple tv so i got a bit of a flavor of everything i guess and okay i mean how would you kind of quantify quality in qualitative terms give us your genuine point of view obviously don't worry for a second about the fact that i'm here i've got a very large knife hot garbage absolutely uh let's let's start with aco tv let's get that eighty-nine thousand pound get rid of that the room okay so graham was awful but of course um I, I thought the aco feed was brilliant of in the fact that you guys had some issues earlier earlier in the week and it wasn't necessarily the same slick operation behind the scenes that it would normally be it wasn't noticeable, certainly during the race, I didn't think. You know, I, I'm still a big fan of the TV graphics. I thought they looked great. The, not, not, not something everybody agrees with you on. No, I, I like I like them um, more than more than the ones that they used previously. Um, it was difficult when it got to overnight sometimes because obviously there, there weren't as many cameras as we're used to seeing in recent years. That always makes it tough. And sometimes it's it's quite frustrating when you can see a cctv footage of a car in the wall but there's no replay footage of anything and nobody caught it and that's you know difficult for everybody but as a broadcasting product um it was humorous 
practically everyone knew what they were talking about to you know a degree that you know perhaps exceeds some of the other options um but yeah i thought it was great as as a product uh, that was gonna that for me that's the best way to watch if you're gonna if you're gonna um watch the tv pictures ready le mans how did they do they there's a they had very different race for le mans at least for uh, the Radio Show Limited crew, they weren't on site. That's not something they would have been relishing. But how did they deal with those challenges? Obviously, what they were doing, they were they were using timing and scoring and our pictures to compensate the race about. Mm. I thought they were very impressive. Um, there weren't many differences to the coverage than normal. I mean, the fact they didn't have pit, guys in pit lane was a big, you know, omission. And it meant that I think they had a couple of people effectively calling people up from their phones you know sitting remotely somewhere to get those interviews done and sometimes the sound quality was a bit off but that's just it's what it is it's what it is there's nothing they can do and sometimes they're having to get people in on skype or something like that and and that was a bit you know it, it was a little bit messy at times but they did what they could with what they had and they did it incredibly well and they there was something that i did notice which was without them all being there on site and being completely knackered and having done the travel and the late nights and the early starts like they would normally, everyone sounded a little bit more chirpy, had a bit more energy than normal. Okay. Um, I thought that was pretty noticeable. Um, As you but, know, Stephen, I mean, yeah, you will know as well, I mean, Le Mans week is chaos. Is really tough. I mean, it is, by the time you get to the race, you've probably done two weeks worth of normal work. Mm. The the I think the biggest problem they had... Um, was their their access to timing screens and data behind the scenes? I think they had Paul Trusser helping them in some instances, but they suffered, from what I could tell, um, with the same problems that the, the rest of us covering it remotely did, which is the timing screens just weren't up to scratch. But they aren't the same as the ones you get in the press room. They don't include. It's little things like how long each pit stop was every yeah. time somebody comes in. It's all those little things that make it just that little bit harder to read the race. And they did suffer from that. But as a whole, good product. And your final uh, option, strap in, is Eurosport. Um, Well, the picture quality was good. (laughs) (laughs) They were our pictures. Um, I'll I'll be be literally as fair as I can be. Um, They didn't know enough. You know, these are, you know, I know quite a lot of the people on the Eurosport broadcast and they're nice people. And, you know, it's an incredibly tough task to cover a race like Le Mans 24 hours, especially if you're not on site at the other WC races or IMSA races or ELMS races and you don't necessarily feel as connected to that community and the championships as much as you'd like. Man, oh man, it was clear at points they didn't have enough research behind them. Uh, Stephen, the quality of the Eurosport broadcast was just as bad as it was last year. In the year oh, before. yeah, I'm, I'm not saying it wasn't, so, but I didn't hear it last year. Understood. Because I was in the press room. <laughs> no, understood. I'm just, we need to be honest. COVID had nothing to do with the quality of the broadcast. And I'm just adding points. The date change had nothing to do with the quality of the broadcast. It was just as terrible as last year. Vast majority of the time, we're not commenting on what was happening in front of them, providing any actual insight or analysis. It was just dreadful, but dreadful funny because there were other counterpoints to offer, be it through Radio Le Mans audio overlaid on the direct pictures out of Le Mans, and then also the WEC feed with Graham and company as well. So uh, just 
wanted to add in a couple points here because I'm all about if there are caveats and excuses to offer, then let's please offer them. In this case, this was 100% a continuation of the nonsense they've been pumping out for a good time. And even if you are not a full-time coverer of sports car racing and the 24 Hours of Le Mans, we know when last year's race ended. We knew when this year's race was meant to start. We also knew when things were adjusted to a new calendar date. Ample time was presented to every person speaking into microphones across all the different distribution channels we have discussed. And lo and behold, the same lack of shits given (laughs) was on display and made for (laughs) immense comedy moments to offer. Let let, let me kind of add a little bit more color to this. Uh, I'll just say this. In terms of the level of preparedness, which you commented on, we, that is the ACO TV crew, had a couple of late changes enforced upon us because of a couple of changes to the crew linked in to uh, the uh, reasons around COVID-19. So it's to do with uh, inability to actually uh, be able to to self-isolate or to to quarantine when they came back. So in particular, we knew we were coming in with a very inexperienced and undermanned, or underwomaned as it was in this case, uh, pair of pit lane reporters. Having realised that, Regular readers of Daily Sports Car would note that we didn't do previews this year for the Le Mans 24 hours. First time we've ever not done that. The reason for that is because I binned that and spent the entire week before I left on the Tuesday for uh, the Le Mans 24 hours, including the Tuesday morning before I left, writing preview material for every team and every car in every class, including... Actually, as it turned out, 180 driver profiles. Uh, It comes out to tens of thousands of words. Uh, So there are five separate documents, one per class, that went to every single one of the ACO TV crew. And indeed, it went um, to at least one of the Eurosport crew uh, who uh, rang and told me they were... uh, I'll tell you right now, that's Toby Moody, who was one of their pit lane reporters. Of course, used to be part of the ACO TV and WCTV crew in past years. That's the level of preparation that, that, that I put in and that others put in. And I know, because I was hearing my own words spoken back to me by Jamie Campbell-Walter, by Peter Dubbreck, by Alan McNish, and by um, both Alexandra and Hayley in the pits, that those were, were read and, if not studied, certainly cribbed as we went. You can't bluff your way through an international race with that kind of level of depth, Stephen. Yeah, I want to ask you this as well, Marshall. When you were listening to the coverage, did you find that one of the big problems with it was is that they felt it would be great to get people engaged? And I don't have a problem with that, is that, you know, getting people to go on Twitter and ask them questions and, you know, make comments and stuff. But that made it worse because they were <laughs> getting people to ask them questions and give opinions but they didn't know the answers to any of the questions so they just made up the answers and yes. i spent too much time doing that yeah uh, I, I did I, I i did hear that there was a couple of hours worth of conversation about peugeot's new hydrogen prototype overnight and that that popped up on my timeline if that's the case guys come on come on you know this was news this week it's the news this week that's not difficult. I'm sorry it's not difficult. I don't know who did it. I don't know who said it. 
but that really, honestly, the audience deserves better than that. I just viewed it as performance art, as an absurdist 24-hour art installation of, let's see if we can assemble a group of people. And there were some in there, and I, I apologize for making a blanket statement when the good Damien Faulkner and Sam and, you know, there were some who were genuinely trying to bring quality analysis to that 24-hour comedy art installation. But the folks who were primarily tasked with hosting, leading the conversation, uh, adding real analysis, not the driver insight, folks, I can only assume that Eurosport makes a decent wedge of money off of broadcasting this event because that's the only thing that I can find that would justify its ongoing presence on their airwaves because clearly in how they decide to assemble and present a team to deliver the race with words, it does not speak to anything that is driven from a place of quality. It doesn't pretend to have the first root of excellence involved, and therefore it makes it, you can only take it as humor, because if you just take it directly as it's delivered, as a sports car racing true fan, as I've said many times, there are no casual sports car fans, not in this stuff anymore. It's too nuanced to really be able to know what you're looking at and understand all the facets. To put, by and large, folks on a commentary team that just have no idea about anything and spend so little time talking about what's happening in front of them and doing nothing by and large about giving you insights as to, aha, this team is double stinting, triple stinting. They're doing this. They're doing that. Let's bring you inside the race. Truly analyze what you're seeing in front of you. That's just not part of what they do. So you get a bunch of fans looking at the race and just saying whatever comes to mind. And that's the part where there's the big, big foul here. Because we have Radio Le Mans as a well-known standard. We have the WEC feed, English feed, as a well-known standard. If not for Radio Le Mans, and the WEC feed, you'd still have complaints, but at least you wouldn't know how good it is or can be to then have this outlier where you go, what is this? Coming back to Stephen's question, this was really the thing that delivered the proverbial nail in the coffin. They would ask for questions, get questions, and it was funny to listen, watch, observe, whatever, Whenever a question would come in, RFID was one of the questions that came in. What does the RFID thing mean at the end of pit lane? We all know that it's there, that it is an electronic system. These are sensors that pick up the RFID data being dispatched by the tires so that race control and obviously um, everyone that needs to know which tires are going on the cars absolutely has that information transmitted through this RFID system. 
zero knowledge whatsoever. This isn't a brand new thing. This is also something that led to a bit of a panicked look, verbally stating, verbally straight, not under their breath, but just straight into the mic. I forget whether it was Google or Wikipedia, someone saying they were having to go search that to find out what the hell it is. But where the, the real proof of the lack of qualifications was the questions would come in, they would choose some, and the often situation was whomever didn't know the answer to the question would pick that question and then throw it to someone else. (laughs) I mean, it just absolute brutal tossing of your booth mate, and I realize social distancing and whatnot, but throwing one of your broadcast mates under the biggest, heaviest bus. And it happened over and over and over again. Oh, here's some question about something that I know nothing about. Uh, Fred, over to you. And you just, like I've mentioned this last year when we reviewed it, and maybe the year before, you just hear dead air. Because the person on the other end is going, what did you just do to me? You just, (laughs) what? Normally, what you don't do is take the questions you don't know the answer to. You grab the ones where you do. It was just proof positive that we could grab four to five people out of probably any hill overlooking most sports car races and say, hey, have at it, and you'd probably get better insights. So I just have to treat it as comedy, guys, because if you treat it seriously, you just want to punch the wall. And I know that some of the broadcast members there uh, want to push back and think that we're mean and whatever for saying this stuff. I can't tell you what isn't true here we'd love for that to be better than what it is thank the sweet baby jesus we have other options to fill our ears for those who need commentary from others to fill their ears i think we've had quite enough about that we've got one thing actually is one other question that came out and did mention eurosport which came from ian keyworth and he says on the eurosport commentary they stated lmdh uh, stood for Le Mans Daytona Hypercar. Is this true or fake news? It's fake news. There is no um, definition of what the H stands for. Even at the press conference in January, uh, they did actually say in this kind of nuanced um, uh, film trailer type voice, Le Mans Daytona H. That's what it said. <laughs> it just did. You were, you were in the room, were you, MP? No, I, I was oh, watching from no, afar. But... That, my apologies, of course you went, but that's what it said. And it was like you saw the entire room kind of go, what? Um, but for, for the moment, thank you very much for the questions on this kind of stuff. Lance Snyder, Trent Barr, uh, Lauren Norell, uh, Dan Summerskill, of course. We uh, could Joey do Zoe. three hours on Eurosport, so we're uh, not. We could. Uh, Shall we? Oh. <laughs> maybe that's part two. Maybe we'll dive back in. Let me get us back on the rails here with Weck, Aslam, Elms, Aco. Let's go to Kevin Kemp. Asks, what was the feeling uh, on the ground about the future of GT? Will we see GT3 at Le Mans in the near future? Kev, got to mention you got a uh, a stop and uh, stop and hold here. You spelled Le Mans as one word, and that's <gasps> uh, that's the, about the most worstest penalty you well, could it, commit it, here hashtag me personally a, says so if I, if you had a hashtag in front of it it'd be fine but it didn't so it won't right so the answer there is both sides of the story uh came at me about gtlm 
if you're US, GTE, um, morphing into GT3. Most people in the industry directly, uh, as in the manufacturers, are saying that they believe it has got a short to medium term future, at least. I think a lot depends on what we do or don't hear about the future with Aston Martin uh, moving forward. So to lose another manufacturer, I think, would be pretty disastrous. But when you think about the kind of the level of cars we had in GTE Am, albeit dominated by Porsche and Ferrari with a couple of Aston Martins, but there were 22 cars there at Le Mans, um, vast majority of which are full season entries in one or other or a third of the ACO's major series. The um, GTM class is in pretty rude health. Do they need to have a plan B? There's no doubt in my mind they need to have a plan B. Are they aware they need to have a plan B? They are absolutely aware that they need to have a plan B. I think they are waiting to see what comes out in terms of the current machinations of manufacturers to do with LMDH, to do with their own uh, individual economic challenges coming out of the COVID, well, say we're coming out of it and the ongoing COVID-19 crisis to determine when you will need that plan B. Uh, but right now, I don't think GTE is going anywhere very soon. We already know IMSA have uh, reconfirmed their commitment to it for 2021. I see no difference whatsoever happening with either the European Le Mans series or uh, WEC. Asia Le Mans series, by the way, uses GT3 already. And I'm very well aware of the kind of mix and numbers we might well get in that series next year um, with the four race series due in the new year. Uh, for the moment, all is well, all is well. Let's wait and see, hashtag let's wait and see how much longer they can hold that. And in particular, the starting gun for maybe a little bit more pace behind the debates might well come if and when we find what's going to happen with the Aston Martin Racing Programme next year. That, by the way, is uh, not uh, a statement made from the position of expecting there to be a change. It's simply we haven't heard that it's been confirmed. Going to throw this one to Stephen and try and do a little bit of weaving back and forth so we can get one question, one answer here. Right turn lover, our good pal, wouldn't have a week in sports cars episode without him. Stephen, tell us who is your overachiever in this year's Le Mans 24? Who did the most with the least? That's a, that's a really tough question. Um, I, the first team that comes to mind for me, um, it's difficult this question because nobody has an aside from by college probably yeah has an absolutely awful car that is capable of nothing there's there's two teams actually that come to mind first is Reese in a yep. field of um factory teams and they didn't have a clean run in the race and managed to get pretty darn close to a podium i think yep. that's a pretty impressive run they they weren't you know anywhere near the front at any point but they stuck at it and they carried on they did what Reese always do which is just get on and do it um the other one is uh Chetelar racing with their delara because they had a pretty clean run, very clean I remember. Run. And that, you know, in a car that is with a joker pack is just not good enough up against a, a field of Oricas. Um, actually, you know, top 15 finish, I finished 14th on the road overall. That's pretty impressive. So top 10 in the class. Yeah. 
pretty impressive for me. There were a number of those, I think, clean runs uh, with teams that perhaps weren't fancied um, that came in with top 10 finishes, particularly in MP2. Uh, I know we got further questions about the Richard Mill Racing team. They had an impressively clean run. Algarve Pro Racing with, you know, a team without you know, a recognised real star there. I was on the phone to Algarve Pro Racing this afternoon about a different question when something popped into my inbox and I was able to tell Sam and Stu Cox live that they weren't eighth, they were seventh. They were running hugging mechanics in the in the um in the in the the workshop delighted utterly delighted and they again had a remarkably clean run for a car that is run um very professionally but without a lot of the bells and whistles that come elsewhere there's a lot like that where teams are running for reliability and a finish and that is as good as a win for some of these guys and that's equally valid i think at the Le Mans 24 hours mm, yeah certainly and I, I would say you've got to mention the one rebellion as well. I mean, to go up against the might of Toyota, it wasn't a door-to-door um, race where they had a real chance of winning on pace, but that car was rapid in hyperpole. Mm-hmm. Gustavo Menezes was on fire, and the one that had, a, aside from that nose change, had a really good race. Really, really. Good race. You know, when you consider where privateer P1s were a few years ago. And over the years, just how up against hybrid NP1s, they would just be lapped within an hour. They kind of hung in there. And it was the first time I think we saw Toyota at the Mont 24 hours since Porsche left, where it didn't feel quite so mm, just like a, a formation run to the finish. The, re- the reality was, and we were talking about this on the broadcast towards the end of the, the race, yes, they were lapped up, Toyota, at the end. But they were one problem away with one bullet left in the gun from losing them on to Rebellion in Rebellion's last, what turns out now to be confirmed as Rebellion Racing's last race ever. Uh, at the moment, prepping a piece about that history. And, you know, in the since 2008, when they first started, there's only been two seasons where they didn't run at least one LMP1 car at Le Mans. You know, we've had a GT car, the Spiker. And we had the 2017 when they ran the two LMP2 cars. But apart, aside from that, it's been either one in 2008 and 2009, or for the remainder of their uh, Le Mans career, two LMP1 cars every single year. That's mighty. And that deserves some real respect. So, yeah, I, I, I'm with Stephen. They deserve the mention. Second place, I think, reflects the effort. Um, a win probably didn't, but I know we got a question later about Hyperpole. They made it exciting. Mm. And I want to make one more point about the R13, and that is the, the most encouraging thing about that performance was what, is, what it means for next year when Alpine turn up with that car against a, a Toyota hypercar that we don't know what that's going to be like. If the balancing's right and they actually can go head to head, they're going to have to actually, head. you know, if they. Because clearly the, the Alpine's not going to be running at the speed that the Rebellion are able to run it now. It's going to be a good race. I mean, it's a reliable enough car. Running running as a sort of detuned R13 up against some hypercars, they've got they could have a real chance. It's a really smart move, I think, by Alpine to, to take over that program because it is a really good car. There you go, MP. Clearly. Let's go to Stuart Hart. Graham says, with LMH and LMDH regs and entries firming up, what are your predictions for the next round of announcements? 
Is it some sort of Porsche, Volkswagen, Audi group thing? Is it a Ford? Is it a Ferrari, Honda, Hyundai, McLaren? Who do you think is likely? Also asks on the privateer front, do you think United Autosport might step up to do something in the top class? I think there's a number of teams that would be looking to get to the top class. And I think the, the reality is the economy at the moment might delay some of that. Uh, for me, at some point in 2022, seeing some LMDH programs uh, emerge as real cars, I think is a, is a potential reality. Who might step up? Well, there's a list, I think, MP, of what between 11 and 13 manufacturers that just might. I think the first is likely to be Porsche. If Porsche decide they're going to do it, and I think they will, my guess is we will hear about that possibly as early as December this year. Uh, but that's traditionally when Porsche make their announcements at their Night of Champions. I think that's when we might hear something about the next step forward for Porsche International Sports Car Racing. Beyond that, again, talking to a number of people in and around the paddock in WC and at Le Mans, and having a chat to some of our friends from North America as well. There are certainly within that, that dozen or so manufacturers, those that are far more likely to uh, to come early. Uh, I wouldn't be remotely surprised to see something coming from Mazda. I wouldn't be remotely surprised to see coming something coming from Lexus. And I would expect that the balance is that they're more likely to come in the U.S., but we're hearing that some Japanese manufacturers might like a bit of a crack um, at Toyota's crown. Uh, so might we see a kind of Mazda dual program? There's a lot of hashtag let's wait and see. Uh, McLaren talked a good game. Time they actually put the ante up. Uh, I, I believe that we've got a reasonable chance of Ferrari coming with a hypercar. I think the starting gun to that will be Porsche saying they're coming with an LDH in December. And at that point, I think things might start to roll pretty darn quickly to the point where in, in June of 2021, you might reasonably expect there to be a number of announcements or even in January 2021 at Daytona. So there's a lot of potential here. Were we in normal times I'll put my car to the table now and say I would be surprised if we didn't see six or more. We're not in normal times, and I'd be delighted with three to six. And for those who don't know, Graham, why would a Porsche decision be reserved for the delightful month of December? They have, the, they have their, uh, their, their annual uh, awards thing, the Night of Champions, yep. uh, usually at the factory. That will be done, I'm sure, uh, from distance this time, which has some advantages in terms of what we're looking for here. Because if you've not got a lot of people in the same room, you're going to want some big news. You're going to want some some big news to actually uh, attract attention to what it is you're doing beyond whatever it is you've won. And it's true to say that Porsche haven't won a whole lot this year um, in international sports car racing. So, and they certainly didn't win at Le Mans. I'm sure we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, so, I would suggest to you that is the most likely time frame for us getting an indication that another step has been taken with LMDH. We've now got the outline regulations um, for them, uh, the, those, uh, the, the dimensions, the powertrain, 
the more particularly the partners that are behind the development of that spec, a hybrid aspect of the powertrain uh, is now defined. The information is all there. It's now a matter of the motorsport professionals and those big manufacturers picking their moments for when they take the next step. And that next step is a big one. It's a doozy because that's when they go in with the, you know, ring binders and the PowerPoint presentation and make the big bid for money in front of at the moment what are a hugely hard-pressed uh, cabal of boardrooms around the world. Let's go to Daniel Summersgill, I believe the owner of this show. Uh, Daniel asked the question, maybe pivoting off of uh, Roman Rusinov's five feet of Le Mans he was experiencing there for a while in the uh, entry I lovingly refer to as good drive. Uh, the current LMP2 cars have been seen to be ironclad uh, since they were introduced. Yet at Le Mans, we saw much of the LMP2 field having mechanical or electrical issues. What is the explanation for this? Stephen, any thoughts on why the normally bulletproof class was uh, getting shot quite often? Well, I'm not sure what you heard on the ground from people there, Graham, but from the outside looking in, it looked like it could be a combination of things. It could have been um, the fact that the cars haven't been uh, as prepared as they would normally be for the race because it was a condensed schedule. There was no test day, so everyone was thrown into it sort of with half a week and, and short short time frames between each session. So it was quite a rapid-fire schedule, wasn't it? Also, that there's going to be uh, the fact that some of these cars that are being used right now getting on a bit a few years old aren't they some of them and at some point some of these parts that may never have needed to be replaced or during the last sort of six months when we've had all these shutdowns and people perhaps not working in their workshops as often maybe things weren't stripped down in and you know in the time frame that they would like them to do um it's those sort of things it's all about preparation i think I think it's quite an interesting one in that a lot of the cars that had the early problems were WC cars. 36 car and the 29 car, those identical problems with uh, engine temps uh, at the very early part of the race, both WC cars. We had the Jackie Chan DC racing car, that car, another WC car. That Those cars have only raced once um, during the kind of crisis period. The last time they raced before Spa was at Cota. Um, so I think there's an element of preparation that might have been there. I, I would find it difficult to believe we've not had full rebuilds for all of those cars. Mm. But it was very, very odd that there were a lot of niggly problems. It wasn't, by the way, exclusive to the WC cars. You said about the G-Drive car, um, that car, obviously a full-season LMS car. We've already had three races in that series. But the there were far more niggles than you would normally expect. And I I can't put my finger on it, but there did seem to be some commonality between some of those problems. Two cars overheating, lots of electrical, electronic problems for starters, two of which obviously happened at roughly the same time. Stephen? You know, correct me if I'm wrong, Graham, but when this current generation of P2s first took to the track, there were a lot of electrical gremlins oh, at the start. We had, you know, we had cars cutting out, you know, going at high speeds, where cars are not going to but, fire up. But, but that it's was kind of reminiscent of the first year of this. Yeah, that, that though was compatibility issues. We had a lot of issues with the um, the cars. Remember at Monza in particular, cars just cutting out at full speed. But this was 
compatibility issues between the various electronic gizmos that have been pulled together to work as a whole, but to ensure that you could make the budgets work for a cost-capped LMP2 class. We're way beyond that, but it was unusually um, difficult to see those cars getting the clean runs you would normally expect them to do. Cars like the 32 car, which uh, suffered a fractured uh, oil line, that's just unlucky. But there were others that you just kind of thought that, you know, that we certainly asked the, the question out loud on air, is something going on here? Is there an issue, a batching problem with something here? Um, and I wouldn't be at all surprised to find that that might have been the case, uh, for instance, with some of the electronic uh, kit and caboodle, or maybe even uh, whether or not it was um, things like the throttle. I think two cars have throttle sensor problems. So, you know, it it was a bit of an odd one. It wasn't even a really, really hot year or anything. No, no, it wasn't parts that were being burnt out like no, no, 2017 no. or anything. So it was better. I think what it comes back down to is this. Were there patterns? Yes. But there wasn't a pattern with six and seven cars. There were a two or three batches of two where they had similar issues. It'd be interesting to actually uh, talk to one or two of the teams when we get to Monza for the European Le series to ask what their conclusions were. The final conclusion is this, which is the reality is in this current formula, uh, we'll, we'll see whether or not there's a difference that's made to anything else when we get to the you know slightly dumbed down version of the cars we're going to see when we get into um, the post-hypercar LMDH era. But the day of actually wanting to run anything other than Orica, I'm afraid, is gone. Let's go to our pal. The rest of the cars are nowhere. Let's go to our pal SRA smoking puppy. Not eight forty, not eight forty two, eight forty one. Asks: Does Mikkel Jensen have the having the second best twenty lap average in LMP two yet again? Disprove driver rankings. Says hashtag me personally, especially as it seems unlikely he'll be upgraded for twenty twenty one with United Autosport on course for the ELMS title. He's set to be a hyper silver for 2021. How deeply do you think these things get parsed as well, guys, by the good old ACO and the WEX and the folks in charge of this stuff? Because it's hard to refute numbers like this in terms of lap time average, but curious if you think they really go this deep into a dive, trying to determine who has what ratings coming out of a season. I I think the answer is, I think... Fewer people within the corridors of power care as much about it as we do and our listeners do. Uh, the reality, I was talking to Phil Hansen uh, before Le Mans. I'll speak to him again this week. I've no doubt whatsoever about it. Resigned to the fact that if he's going to be champion of the LMS and all the WEC, he could quite uh, conceivably end up being both a unique record that he will be a gold-ranked driver next year. Unless he wins, he won't be because that's what, We've been told by the FIA there there are various exclusions to a general reality that mean that these guys are going to stay at their current um, level for this year because there's been that lack of racing. Hi, Rocky. Um, So, um, Mikkel Jensen, does he make a mockery of it? A bit. It's not Mikkel's fault. Um, We had a batch of drivers this year uh, coming into the LMS and, you know... um, Phil Hansen is one, Duncan Tappy's another, uh, Jod Vanute is a third. That the reality is, really, on their 
ability should be gold ranked drivers. But they appealed with the rule book in front of them. And all of those guys and others came back out as silvers. Um, is it flawed process? Absolutely, 100% it's a flawed process. And I am at a loss to understand why we're, they're not taking a look. They seem to tinker around the edges with, you know, what's going to be the, uh, the rules next year to do with LMP2, because there will be a change, by the way, next year for LMP2, whether or not that be a mandatory bronze, which would be a mistake, whether or not it would be mandatory at uh, two silvers. Um, I think it's going to be that. The, the answer here is going to be, why are we messing about around the edges and not grasping the really big, painful nettle, which is there's one thing that needs sorting and only one thing that needs sorting, and that's silver and gold. That's it. Nothing else is a problem. OK, if you're platinum, you're a platinum. There might be one or two platinums in the world who are unhappy with their platinum lot. But the reality is this is about the definition of a silver and the definition of a gold. And I'd even go as far as to say is if we could just get to actually talking about silver, that would be quite nice uh, because that's the one that causes all of these problems year in and year out. I reckon if we were to go back, MP, and look at the questions we've been asked over the time that we've been running weekend sports cars, this has to be right up there in the top five of the kind of the areas of questions uh, that we've been asked from the very beginning that have not yet been resolved. There's been lots of stuff that we found solutions to. This is one that has not moved anywhere in all that time. Ain't that the truth? Let's go. We're going to bounce around a little bit here. Stephen Gardner. One of the preview topics we discussed, Graham, really sad, by the way. We had zero sales of our uh, bear whistle, by the way. Uh, what does Canada's Paul Dalalana and the Aston Martin 98 crew have to do to shake the cartoon anvil that seems to befall them, no matter how good or how bad their car is running at Le Mans? We know that they have the right car based on the GT victory outcome, but he just can't seem to get there on his own. Any thoughts on Dear Paul and uh, cartoon anvil removal and or stoppage of bear strikes? It is ridiculous, isn't it, MP? It's just, I, I don't have the answer. I don't think Paul has the answer at this point. He, there was never going to be a, a better year, certainly in the last few years, for him to have a shot at winning this. The room of a chance. The Aston was clearly the car to have by the time the, you know, the temperatures dropped and night fell. That was clear. And they had the drivers to do it. Ross Gunn was superb. Augusto Farfus doesn't need any introduction. He's still incredibly quick. And Paul was really good as well. Paul's rapid. Exactly. He had a great race as well. And he just, the luck is ridiculous. I I don't know what to say. Do you have any thoughts, Graham? I don't know what, I don't know what he could do at this point. Just, I, I law think, of averages, he's got to win it at some point. I think just, I think the only thing Paul can do is to go to the corner of the garage curl up into a smaller ball as a quite a large Canadian can and just sob quietly to himself because that's what I'd be doing in his position. Time and time and time again, we've seen that car and that group in a position to be able to come home with a great result or a win. And okay, pretty famously on one occasion, in fact, right in front of me in commentary booth, uh, he made the mistake that, that wrote off their race and wrote off the car. But it's just a catalogue of yeah, again it's a bit like the question with LMP2 there's not a common theme here it, some of it's luck some of it's misfortune 
but it just does seem to be, oh, no, and the 98 car, it's slow on the Lausanne, we're a long way from home. And it's like, we could actually just have a button that said that. You know, just, hang on a minute, I'll just find the PDL button. Oh, no, it's, the, it's running slowly, the 98, which Aston Martin's, it's the 98, something like that. And that has been the case every single year, other than the, the year where Paul crashed it into a wall. Yeah, it's like, um, aside from the last few years, it's as if Toyota did bronze drivers. Yes. Yeah, it's just the same sort of thing. Turn up every year. Every year they have a shot and something goes horribly wrong and it's a different thing every time and it's just sad. It is sad. sad. Paul, if you're listening... Love you to bits, Paul. Love you to bits. My heart goes out to you, pal. If there's one gentleman driver in that field that deserves, on the basis of effort expended, and, by the way, uh, talent emerging to be on the top step of that podium, it's Paul Delana. I think the race has got something against Canadians. Maybe it's because they just know that if he won it, maybe he'd walk away, so it just keeps him coming back each It's year. the race, it's the race. It's, it's that race. It's not, yeah, it's it's not, not the ACO, it's not WC, it's not Aston Martin Racing, it's not Augusto Farfus, it's certainly not Pedro Lamy. It's the race doesn't yeah. like you, Paul. It doesn't like you. Did, you. did you spill its pint at some point? Or its maple syrup. I have a theory... That might solve this. We need, and I, I, we could say it could be the 98 Aston. It could be a different mark. Uh, who knows? I like the idea, but I need your help in coming up with the third AM driver. We're going to have an all GTE AM entry next year. That being led by Paul Dalalana, mm-hmm. Ben Keating, and Ooh. we need a third. It's the all would you just give him a, a goddamn win um, lineup? Perfetti. A Perfetti. Well, that's a Perfet- near perfect answer. I like that one. Um, what car do they drive, and do we risk tempting the cartoon anvil that appears to be locked in on anything with the number 98? I think the answer is he's tried it with Aston Martin now so many times it's got to be the Aston Martin that's a problem. The race doesn't like that car. So, number one, it can't be number 98. It's got to come up with a different number in case that's it. And then you've got to look for a car that the race just isn't expecting. I think we're going to put him in a BMW M8. Maybe you should go under an assumed name, like Steve Ooh, Brooks. Steve Brooks, yeah. Paul Dalla Alpaca. <laughs> you know, I don't know. I think um, we go with Lala Donna. As his name, and I think he gets entered in the number 89 Martin Aston. I think that's what we do. I think we just solved that problem or made it far worse. Well, I I think it, no, I think it's the, it's a number 89. I like it, but I think it should be the Bill MW uh, because that's what BMWs are now called after Bill Oblin's record breaking. So the Bill MW MH GTE, uh, but do it in Aston Martin colors. Maybe. Or something. How about golf martini colors? Mm, or oh, wins Mentos. <laughs> Jesus. Here we go. The minty, the minty fresh taste of wins. We're going to Andy Merrick because we're already off the Not rails and I've got like, 20-ish minutes left in this episode. <laughs> And we've gotten through three of 12 pages. Uh, Andy Merrick. Hey, guys. The two all-female teams finished P9 in their classes. The number 50 car in LMP2, the number 85 in GTEM. Says the 85 car was outperforming their team cars that finished P11, P19, 
curious about your thoughts and what's the future of that Signatech, Ricard Meal, LMP2 effort? Will it continue? Let's talk about the women who did good, good things. Okay. They, they both went roundy, 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 quickly, quickly, quickly without setting worlds on fire because that's climate change's uh, job. But uh, I was impressed. I mean, let's talk about first the 85 car. That uh, car was second year at Le Mans. Different team preparing the car this year. It's an AF course who prepared the car this year. Those three ladies, I believe, will be in the WEC next season. That's exactly where we need to see that progression. And they are opening eyes to what is possible. A long chat with Alan McNish about this effort, the whole effort, um, over lunch, I think, on the Friday. And... You know, Al is a professional race driver and as a, a factory team manager, uh, you know, principal in uh, Formula E, you know, it's not without controversial opinions, but he, you know, he was impressed. And we were talking about when is the moment when you start to activate this away from being tokenistic to the point where you are shouting from the rooftops what's been achieved and throwing the doors open. It's beginning to expand. We'll see another car next year if uh, if the plans come together. There will be a replacement car in the LMS with an all-female crew in the LMS with the same team, I believe, um, alongside the WEC team. What do I know about the LMP2 team? I think the beat should be sufficiently encouraged that uh, that should continue. We've not got that confirmed yet. Might we see that effort in the WEC? I think we could. I think to be blunt, in terms of pace, they would not be in a good place there yet. But God's sake, they've not had a race where those three girls have actually uh, raced together twice. We had three different crews for three different races on the back of Cat Legs, unfortunate accidents at, um, uh, at Paul Rickard. Let this bed in. Let's see with a bit of testing what more speed the three ladies involved or perhaps others that might be brought uh, into the program can actually find. But I think it's perfectly valid. And I think if people can, you know, turn around and look there and say, there is another possible outlet for a talented uh, female driver looking to make their way in motorsports and that you keep them away from, you know, wasting gazillions in single seaters or heading for the, blind alley of hopelessness that is the DTM, um, then sports car racing could be where it's at. And I think they should go away from them on both crews. And in particular, by the way, the number 50 LMP2 crew and be very, very proud of themselves. Indeed, still get a lot of utter misogynistic nonsense to do with some of these girls. And in particular, Sophia Flush. Okay. On occasion, she may have not have helped herself in terms of the way she uh, has her own, public persona but she's 19 years old okay give her a break let's see whether or not she's got talent let's give her an outlet for that talent and see whether or not she can continue to earn her place in the spotlight in lmp2 so far i have to tell you they finished what was it ninth Mm. there were 15 lmp2 crews that did worse than that there we go rob horn asks now that the LMP2 engines have done approximately 35-plus hours of running, 
Will those Gibson V8s be replaced for the next ELMS slash WEC race? They have an allocation of engines to use within the season? Question mark. It's a great, uh, great question. They are uh, fiercely reliable. For the Gibson engines, you buy a package of mileage basically on those engines and be sure that uh, the majority of those engines will likely be going back for rebuild. There are 50 and only 50 Gibson GK428 engines. 4.2 for the 4.2, 8 for the 8-cylinder. The GL458 is the LMP1 engine. So those engines will go back for rebuild, I have absolutely no doubt whatsoever. There is a pool of engines already in the kind of rebuild um, area. Gibson always have spare engines on hand at the big races and particularly at Le Mans. I think uh, last year at Le Mans, I think they brought seven or eight. Um, so, yes, those engines will be rebuilt. You could well find, in some instances, you actually go into one race meeting with one engine and for whatever reason might finish it with another one completely. For the most part, you know, you might find that that's happening before a race weekend and after Le Mans uh, yet yeah, the boys and girls at Repton and Derbyshire here in the UK will be very very busy indeed before we go racing again in the European Le Mans series with over a dozen cars or in the WEC with about half that number I am going to throw one more at you Graham then we're going to go to Stefan Rob okay. Horn asks what was better the blimp ride or the Fuji bus <laughs> ride uh, I'm going to go for the blimp. Oh, thanks, uh, Graham. Yeah. I thought you were going to say the Fuji <laughs> bus ride just to make me feel a little less sad. Uh, no, the bus ride's fantastic and awesome and unique. Um, but, yeah, there's a piece tomorrow on DSC about that. Thank you very much indeed, Goodyear, for allowing that opportunity. It is the most incredible thing. Um, as you'll read, uh, we had two pilots, one of whom was one of only two female airship pilots in the world and who it emerged was British. And we had a long chat about, of all things, the history of the Zeppelin company. It's uh, Here's the thing. The Goodyear blimp that I was on is not a blimp. It's a semi-rigid airship. A blimp is one that doesn't have a structure. It's effectively a balloon with a gondola. Um, what can I tell you about it? The view was astonishing. Absolutely astonishing. It was incredibly quiet. Um, and incredibly stable, not a lot of wind, but incredibly stable. I was sitting behind the cameraman that was taking the uh, shots uh, using that as an airborne platform, and the stability of it. I, mean, I had a quick chat with him uh, after he, we, were, we were flying back to the landing zone, and um, he said, look, compare this to a, to a helicopter. It's, it's just a different world. Far less vibration, far less noise for starters, um, you can call a shot. You can hold position pretty easily as long as there's not too much wind around. Uh, it was amazing. Huge windows. Um, windows you could open in a couple of the doors so you can actually get a clear and unfettered view. There will be some woefully poor um, iPhone shots from me with reflections of the windows accompanying this piece. Any fan that wants an experience and gets an opportunity to go on that thing, whether it's this side of the uh, the pond or your side of the pond, MP, take it, take it now. If they offer it decent money, pay the money. <laughs> just just go and do it. It is one of those things. Remarkable for me that the, my very first flight since the end of February this year, in a period of time when I should really have taken about 20, was on a Zeppelin. 
I'm just impressed that you left the flip phone at home and used an iPhone for those photographs, Graham. So, Absolutely, uh, We're making progress here. Young Mr. Kilby, we have a question from Nikolai B. Says the number seven Toyota TS050 missed a decent chunk of the first practice session with an unknown issue. Do you happen to know what caused it, whether it was related to the eventual turbo and exhaust manifold issue they had, which cost them the race? Can I do a Eurosport and go, I don't know, Graham. (laughs) 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 I reckon, I think we possibly wrote about it, but I can't now remember. But now I need to start calling you Chris Parsons, Stephen. So so the straight answer is, I don't know. I do know they didn't have the smoothest of Le Mans coming into it. You'd never know, would you? But they didn't have the smoothest of Le Mans. Just blame it on RFID, guys, and then we can move on to the next question. Yeah. Come on, you muppets. I don't know what it means. But, mm. uh, okay, let's move on to the next question. Uh, Joe Izzo just says, despite all the negativity, I, for one, must commend Eurosport for its endless entertainment. That was the rom-com 88th Le Mans 24 Hour. There's no way that was supposed to be a highly educated and properly produced show. Uh, there, there, there you go. Um, we're going to go to, I don't know if we actually have attribution here for where the next range of questions come from. Somebody is, there's a couple that I've realized I chopped off the name by mistake, Well, but it's it's Jacob Bain. Okay. Well, I should have known that with uh, the way that he wrote Weckasm Elm's Echo. It's Um, Jacob Bain. Yeah. Jacob, how you doing? Yakub, we will, uh, say thanks as always for your constant support of what we do in this little nonsensical gathering each week this is hashtag me personally take the new qualifying format uh okay says uh when it was announced i said right away it wouldn't work says i love the hyperpole idea but now saw no sense in cramping all 62 cars in a 45 minute session on a track where a single lap takes an average of three minutes and 30 seconds and now afterwards i feel i was right says practice sessions felt kind of empty because to me as a viewer, they had no meaning. I just stared at screens, grasping on stuff to care about. Um, it says the, let's see, just trying to read through. we got a lot of words here, as he mentioned. Um, to summarize. Well, for let's 20- MP, MP yeah. let's deal with the qualifying bit first because I think okay. it's, it's, it's a very valid discussion uh, point. Um, I feel it did work. I think there's one refinement that could be made that I think could make it work better. Nudity. Uh, look, look <laughs> endurance is endurance, and if you're a purist, qualifying means nothing anyway. Let's get that one out of the way, and let's deal with the reality that the ACO are trying to attract a worldwide TV audience to their events. And to do that, you need something that is televisual, which means you need something that's a bit wham-bam. Thank you, ma'am. So for me... And I again had this discussion with the uh, the the crew, Jamie Campbell Walter, XLMP1 driver, of course, um, with Peter Dunbreck, ex uh, professional aviator at Le Mans, and with uh, Alan Three Winds <laughs> McNish. Um, the 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 answer we came up with is two effective pre-qualifying sessions, one of which had the LMP cars on track, and one of which had the GT cars on track both of which would then give you around 30 cars on track, which is enough uh, to get uh, the potential excitement of having to avoid traffic, but also more opportunity for a clear run. Um, 
I think that would have worked better. Hyperpole itself, I thought, worked very well. Um, if you like uh, a qualifying session, and I do, there are some that don't work as well as others. Uh, one thing, by the way, we do know is there's likely to be a change in qualifying formats for the WEC next year. We don't know what Wait. that's going to be yet, but that will be changed. They're again looking to, and I wouldn't be remotely surprised if we saw something not dissimilar to Hyperpole come in there. But because we saw remarkably quick times from some of those cars, and in particular stand up there and be counted, Gus, uh, Gus Menezes, uh, because that really did make it exciting. The fastest non-hybrid lap ever around Le Mans, could have gone quicker. Um, Kamui Kobayashi could have, should have, would have got that record had he not put a wheel over the line uh, coming into the Porsche curves. That lap that he was on was quicker than the remarkably rapid 14.791 lap uh, back in, can't remember, 2017. Uh, he was on for a low 14s. Uh, in that lap, he was certainly something like four to five tenths up on his previous efforts. So for me, it worked. You can always refine it. I do take the point that you've got those long track sessions at Le Mans where not a lot happens. Maybe they need to think about adding something in there to make that more televisual. Quite what you do. I don't really know about that. Um, I, I'm prepared to kind of give up the uh, Wham Bam Thank You Mam TV audience for a little bit of purity in the days leading up to the world's most punishing 24-hour race. Mm. I, I I thought it was brilliant. Well, I really liked it. I've never been a big fan of the WC qualifying format, and I've never been a big fan of the Le Mans qualifying format either. The Le Mans qualifying format in years past, is, especially if you're a fan trackside, you don't know in your head when the pole lap's going to come unless you clearly know the weather's going to be bad tomorrow. And so it's going to be timing. tonight and you got access to timing. Hyperpole meant everyone gathered one session. You knew the pole times were going to be coming. You knew the track was going to be clearer. So there was going to be real, you know, real opportunities for clear lap times with ridiculous pace. And we got exactly that. I think that's brilliant because, like I say, you don't need hours and hours of qualifying spread over a few days. How many times have we sat in that pressure when it's rained in the middle of a qualifying session? You think, right, that's the next it's hour. Yeah. Pointless. What do we do now? We just sit here and watch as nobody goes out because they don't want to risk their cars. I I agree with you about you know maybe it needs a bit of tweaking. I would like to see all the practice done earlier in the week. Just get the practice done as most race meetings do, and then do a qualifying session that decides who goes into hyperpole, and then do literally hyperpole. 20, 30 minutes later, because by that point in the week, if you do it on the Thursday, you've got a really good crowd track side and they're all going to be well up for it. If it's, you know, towards I'd, the night time. Great. What a spectacle. I'd love what to see spectacle. the cars on track on Tuesday evening for a, for a test session. Um, uh, I, I've i been permanently irritated in the 20 years I've been working in that press room that no cars go on track on the Tuesday. Now, I know there's obviously logistical issues in terms of having to close the roads, but I'm pleased that after years of stagnation with it, that actually they looked again and thought, what do we need to do? I think that I've learned lessons. Um, I spoke to Pierre Fion. He was pleased with the reaction to Hyperpole. I, I wouldn't be remotely surprised if we saw it tweaked. And when we get back to a more regular format, I hope next year, I'm going to be very interested to see what conclusions they came up with. But uh, the, 
pre-qualifying and hyperpole worked they could i think do better but if they chose to go back and do the same thing again it wouldn't be the worst thing you've ever seen at the moment mm. well that is the end of this episode because i have to go do things that involve leaving and not talking to the two of you i will throw in <laughs> i harbor a modest fear on the topic of hyperpole and the efforts by the aco and FIAWEC to brand the top tier of prototypes going Hyper. forward as hypercar. I fear we're going to get a little hype. Hey, it's hyper practice. Hey, it's hyper warm up. Hey, it's hyper scrutineering. Hey, it's hyper tire changing. I just fear it, everything's going to be hyper. Kind of like the use of double points, where if you throw those into too many races, it just stops making it special. So, yeah, I mean, Hyperpole sounds good. Hyper Le Mans, Hyper Graham Goodwin coming to a commentary booth near you. Hyper Haven. (laughs) They just need that help. Um, I'll add this this final word from me before we say goodbye and say thank you to our regular sponsors, which is what I did find when writing this one up all throughout the week is that uh, the – Autocorrect constantly wanted to change it to hyperbole. And I'll give you this. <laughs> hyperbole, it did every time. And I kept trying to catch it every time. Hyperbole, if you don't know, is exaggerated statements or claims not meant to be taken literally. Let's hope we don't get into that when we're talking about Le Mans in the future. I 100% agree with you about the hyper thing. I just hope they've done a little bit of checking through on their logic and their thought process. I don't want to get to the stage where any aspect of the sport that I love is open to ridicule or rather any more ridicule than it already is. <laughs> Can I ask you a quick question, MP? Yeah, I was going to say, cause there's also the overuse that some media does with hashtag breaking exclusive scoop. So, uh, there's fears there as well. <laughs> um, MP on the subject of hyperpole, there's one question I have for you and that is Gustavo Menezes performance. Did that make you hyper proud to be an American? Well, no, because I already happen to be. I was hyper proud, though, that that was done by a fellow Californian. So, I mean, that's right. You would expect awesomeness from the Sunshine State. Never any criticisms leveled our way. So, uh, yes, uh, good old Snoop Gussie Gus. Quick like a bunny. That was really, really quite excellent to see there. It was hyper awesome, maybe. Um, I don't know. Uh, I don't know, guys. Hyper twisk. Hey. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, let's hope it's more hyper than hype. Should uh, I say our good nights for now? Yeah, because we're going to need to come back maybe Wednesday morning. Who knows? That's uh, although fine. I think Stephen, uh, if I recall, Stephen actually has to turn himself into local jail tomorrow morning by ten a.m. Yeah. So. Uh, <laughs> Well, look, I'm going to say thank you to you, Marshall Pruitt, for everything you do and everything you are and everything you help us to do with the Marshall Pruitt podcast. I'm going to say thank you for Stephen uh, for popping over here after a hard day in his day job. Um, I'm not going to thank myself because that would be ridiculous. That would be... Oh, thank you. Thank you, Graham. Thank you. That would be uh, hyped up. Um, But I'm going to say thank you to Cooper Tyres. Thank you to the Justice Brothers. Thank you to TorontoMotorsports.com. And thank you to Bill Helmets USA. We've been 
the three of us. You've been the thousands and thousands of you. Thank you again for sending in the questions. We'll see you later in the week. <laughs>